start the sermon right now instead of sing two more songs. And so, like I said, that's a little bit different. And maybe your brain is going to have to shift gears because you're not ready to pay attention yet. Um, I totally get that as someone that struggles with paying attention. And so I, I promise that, that we're going to get through this. And it will be a really, really neat experience at the end of this. Um, we have been looking for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue, continue this week and next week as well, looking at the letter of 1 Peter. It's called the book of 1 Peter in your Bible. Um, it's in the New Testament towards the back. And it's a letter from Peter the Apostle to churches that are scattered all over what is modern-day Turkey. And as we're looking at this letter, we're asking, how do we as a church, as God's people, navigate a post-Christian America? And because what we are seeing and what we have seen for years is that we are moving away from cultural norms that have their roots in Christianity towards a more pluralistic, diverse culture that doesn't really care what Christianity might have to say about something. And we as the church, those who, who claim the title Christians, are finding ourselves less and less at the center of culture as the dominant voice that sort of sets the norms and standards, and we find ourselves more and more at the margins of society. And so rather than being the central dominant influence, we are on a, the periphery. We are less of a dominant influential voice. And that happens in some areas of culture more than others. We notice it more, um, places like politics, media, culture in general, academia, those are areas where it feels like the world is increasingly anti-Christian. And so we're asking, in light of that, in this world that we now occupy, where, where our world seems to not want the norms that we used to know, how do we live as God's people? And we've been looking at 1 Peter because 1 Peter is a letter that was written to Christians who lived in a world that was hostile towards Christianity, right? The people in these churches were, were facing in, intense, increasingly intense persecution because they professed a belief in Jesus. And Peter, he writes to them and he calls them exiles. That what we talk, that's what we talked about the last couple weeks. Peter has said, you are exiles, and what he's saying is you need to remember, as people who grew up in Jewish families that have accepted Jesus, you need to remember back to your history as Jewish people. When you were once taken as a people from your homeland, where you set cultural norms, where you understood the way things worked in your society, where you were the central dominant voice of how people behaved, and you were taken to foreign lands that wanted nothing to do with your religious system. And in that culture, you were told you are no longer an influencer. You are on the margins. We are in charge. You need to do as you're told. Live as our subjects. And God's people struggled for generations to figure out how do we live in exile? How do we live when it feels like overnight we have been taken from our homeland where everything was comfortable and we knew how things operated, even if it may not have been perfect, into a world that does not want anything to do with our religious beliefs. They're taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And Babylon operates very different from Jerusalem. And this is the question that we today are asking ourselves, how do we as God's people navigate the new Babylon? How do we navigate life in a world that looks very, very different from what we may have known just 20 years ago? And, and what we have said is that, you know, as exiles, 
what we can remember from God's story with his people is that God said, in exile, you need to be faithful, right? Don't start a war with the Babylonians. That's not going to end well for you. Don't start the war. Trust me, because I do have a plan. Now, you may not get to see the fruition of that plan, right? 70 years from now, I'm going to bring you back from Babylon. I'm going to restore all of this. I'm actually going to show myself to the Babylonians and the nations through this. I am working in the midst of this awfulness, but you need to be faithful and let me do what I do. Be my people. Don't become like them. Remain distinct. Live different kinds of lives, but be faithful. And we say, that sounds great. How do we do that? Right? That, that's what I've, in conversations with y'all, like over the last couple weeks, over and over, that's what's come up. Right? It makes sense. I understand. I see, I see the parallels. But what does that actually look like? Right? So we're here. Now what? It's kind of like waking up today as a Colts fan. Right? Like, <laughs> there was the world with Andrew Luck. He had a press conference after a game in which it was released while he was on the sideline. That was crazy. Um, we're here. Now what? I do have to tell you, as a Chicago sports fan, I feel no sympathy for you at all. You went from Peyton Manning to Luck. Okay, in the same amount of time, the Bears had 25 starting quarterbacks. <laughs> 25, I counted. Okay, I, no sympathy at all. Just get used to the way the rest of us live. Anyway, so we're here. We're in Babylon. Now what? How do we practically live out the gospel? If the gospel transforms everything, if we have to have our lives rooted in the gospel, because that's what Peter says, your lives have to be rooted in the gospel, how do we actually live this faith out? I'm so glad that you asked, because Peter gives examples. He gives very practical examples. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, that's where we're going to start. And, and before we, we dive in, this is, this is Peter's start to every example that we're going to go through. He says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is the framework that Peter is going to lay every example after this in. What he's saying is, abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And when we see sinful desires, I think our natural inclination is to just automatically go to, he's talking about sexual behavior. And obviously that is included. I don't know, we're obsessed with sex, desires associated with that. There's so many other places where sexual immorality is related to uh, sinful desires that we might have. But, but Peter is not just speaking about sexual behavior here. He's saying the broader picture. Those desires that you have that are not of God, they come from something. They come from sin, right? You as people have the, the inherent ability and actual preference for sinful behavior. There are all sorts of things that this world would like to tell you will bring fulfillment and satisfaction into your life, 
and you want to pursue those. And so whether that is sexual in nature or, or having to deal with any sort of relationships or possessions or greed, right? The, the idea that if I could just have him, her, it, or enough of it, then I would be happy. That, that's what he's talking about. This desire that you have for anything outside of God, this, these sinful desires that are not fueled by Jesus, you have to learn in exile how to break away from those. Those can't be the thing that control your life. And in fact, the, the path for being faithful in exile is recognizing those sinful desires, saying, I don't want that, and living in a way that has been transformed by the gospel so that your neighbors, those around you, even if they don't like you, would recognize Jesus in the way that you live. When he says that they might give glory to God on the day he appears, what he means is that there will be a day that Jesus returns, right? And he will be the conquering king who will set everything to rights. This is judgment day. And on that day when he appears, if you have lived correctly in exile, when Jesus shows up, all of the pagans, all of the Babylonians will say, there he is, and he looks just like they said he would. We can recognize him because, because he looks exactly the way they do. He is full of grace and truth. He is holy. He isn't condemned. We, Jesus, you are all of these things, and we should have known because that's what your people looked like all along. That's what he's saying. He's saying when Jesus returns, you need to live such good lives that when he shows up, even if they are awful to you, they will recognize Jesus because they have seen him in your lives. You don't have the position of influence at the center to make a decree and magically make everybody moral because that's how it works, right? If you can just get the right political power, then you make a law and magically everybody is moral, good people who love Jesus. That's not the way it works at all. But you don't have power on the margins to believe that fantasy. Instead, your witness to the world comes in the way that you live. People will find out about who God is by the lives that you live. And so the formula for every example he's going to give He's going to say, one, let's recognize the standard of the world. Two, let's transform that standard with the gospel. And three, let's live in a way that looks like Jesus. So for every aspect of life, he's gonna, we're going to go through three examples. I'll try to make it as quick as possible. But he's going to say in every single one of them, let's recognize the standard that the world has. Let's transform that standard with the gospel because everything in our lives has to be anchored around the good news of Jesus. And then let's live in a way that looks like Jesus so that our neighbors might recognize who Jesus is. What does that mean? The first thing he says is how we as God's people relate to government and institutional authorities that are over us, right? So continuing on in, in chapter two, starting at verse 13, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, 
whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Here's a little bit about the religious climate of ancient Rome. The, The idea that was prevalent in the Roman Empire was we will keep peace by letting people practice whatever religion they want to. Okay, you want to use the Greek gods, you want to use the Roman gods, that's totally fine. We don't really care. We don't really believe in the Roman gods anyway, but it's nice, they're stories, it's fun. You can be whatever religion you want to be as long as at the end of the day, everyone can agree to this one statement. Caesar is Lord. Right, So you can do whatever you want. We can tolerate any belief that you might have, any practice you want, as long as it does not break our laws. That's fine. Do that. As long as you recognize that above any belief system anybody might have, Caesar is Lord. That worked out well for everybody but Christians. Because Christians were a very small minority. And so they didn't have political power to fight against the Roman Empire. And Christians had this this guy, Jesus, who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. There would be no other gods before him. Jesus is the way. He is our only hope. He is the only name that saves. And so we can pledge ourselves to no name but Jesus. And so you may want me to say that Caesar is Lord. And he might be in charge of the Roman Empire, but Jesus is Lord. And so the Christians found themselves living in a world that said, we can tolerate any religious belief except Christianity. Maybe that sounds a little familiar in some places. So I think these guys know something about living in a religious climate that might be hostile towards Christianity. And so Peter says, the emperor that spends his entire day thinking and being told by others around him that he is God, the governors who will carry out the commands of the emperor, and whether you like the laws or not, there needs to be a governing authority in the world. Those governors, the same people that will take you, your wives, your children into the public square and kill them publicly for professing the name of Jesus. Well, you should respond in outrage and rebellion and revolt and take back power from them however you can. Right? That's, no, it's not what it said. He says those people, honor them, respect them even if they are completely delusional, even if they enforce laws that that you do not understand, that treat you unfairly, every single one of them, show respect. Now, that's really easy to say when you like whoever it is that might be in an Oval Office, right? Everybody should respect every authority. We like this passage until we don't like 
whatever elected official is over us. And then we have no problem saying whatever disrespectful thing might pop into our heads or be fed to us by a bot or cable news network. Peter is saying, no, those people, you don't silence them by clever arguments and yelling and sharing and reposting. You overcome them by your lives, right? What's the standard of the world? Standard of the world would be to fight fire with fire, push back, start a rebellion, say we're not going to take anything on the chin and demand our rights. This is the way the world does it. This is how we have to engage the system that we're in. Peter says, though, what if we take that standard and we transform it with the gospel? And I can't help but picture Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is about to be arrested. And Peter recognizes the complete injustice of what is about to happen. Jesus is going to be crucified and sent to a fixed trial. And so Peter pulls out his sword and he chops off the ear of a soldier. Jesus heals that soldier, tells Peter, put your sword away. Matthew says that Jesus' words are, do you not think that I could call 12 legions of angels here right now if I wanted to? Jesus is saying, Peter, I understand, but I don't need you and your sword. If I wanted to handle it that way, I could. I am going to overthrow the Romans, but we're not going to do it with war. We're going to do it with love. The standard of the world, let's transform it with the gospel, and then let's live in a way that shows people Jesus. And so we're not going to fight fire with fire. We're not going to scream back. We're not going to need to, to repost anything, the, the, the latest outrage video. We, we, we aren't going to engage in that. It doesn't mean we're going to be silent. It doesn't mean we're going to be doormats. But we are going to be completely respectful with everyone. So that if somebody wants to bring the name of Jesus or his followers into the conversation, they're going to be ashamed because what they will see in our lives is people who love deeply and sincerely and compassionately. And God does not need us to fight for him. So, what else does Peter say? He talks to slaves. Verse 18, he says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And this is right after Peter has just said, you're all free in Christ. You have been freed, but don't use your freedom to cover up evil. Live as slaves to God. Now, slaves in the Roman Empire, slaves in the churches of Jesus, here's a word to you. And before we like, go any further in the application, we, we probably need to talk about the fact that he's addressing slaves and doesn't say outright, slavery is evil. Okay, but slavery, slavery was and is evil. Slavery in the Roman Empire looked a little bit different than chattel slavery that we are most familiar with in 21st century America, right? Slavery of the 17th and 18th centuries, North Atlantic, stealing people from Africa, bringing them over, treating them as property, that's not quite the same system that was at work in the Roman Empire. It was still evil. It was still dehumanizing. People were still severely mistreated in a lot of cases, but it was not based on race, and it was not 
in a form that treated people as property. Many slaves chose slavehood. They volunteered to enter into slavery as a means of providing for themselves. Slaves were regularly released. Slaves could earn and buy their own freedom. A slave would sign up to work for a family. Basically, anything that is done by machines post-industrial revolution, at one point in our world, all of that was done by slaves. And up to two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. Now, again, they were not property of their owners, but they did sign their life to their owners, and they worked for a wage that was enough to get them one day's worth of living. Every day they would work to get just enough to make it to the next day, and then they would work to get just enough to make it to the next day. And there was this, this illusion, this hope that was out there for some of them, that if I could just work hard enough and just save enough money, then I could buy my own freedom. And actually, we don't call them slaves, but we have a whole bunch of people today in our society that live a very similar life. They work just enough to make it through every single day. They can't take time off work because without those wages, they would not be able to make it to the next week. They're not insured or they're underinsured. They can't provide adequate medical care for themselves, their kids. They have to choose to leave their kids at a childcare facility that is maybe not safe or the best or what they would want for their children in order to make enough money to get by. They are dependent on systems that have said, if you make more money, if you try to advance, you are going to be worse off. And so you are now dependent on a system. They're trapped. Every day is a fight to survive with no expectation of hope at the end of the tunnel. Peter is saying, for those who are trapped in a very unfair system, for those who do not have hope, for those who are marginalized and often mistreated because of their marginalization, look like Jesus. Right? The world would say, that if your boss, if your master, if your owner, or, or whatever phrase you want to use, if your boss is awful to you, run away. Desert. Fight back. Stand your ground. And he's not saying be a doormat. He's not saying be silent. He's not saying look for a way out. But he is saying that in every instance you find yourself in, look like Jesus. Because you have been bought, you have been redeemed by Jesus. And so all of the things that would make you, the world would say, you are within your rights or you are within your right mind to fight back against. All of those things Jesus has taken care of on your behalf. And when you act with integrity in those situations like Jesus, you are giving the world a chance to see Jesus. And so again, don't endure abuse, don't just be a doormat, don't not look for a way out, but in every circumstance, regardless of how you are treated, live like Jesus, that the world might see Jesus through you. He then goes on to husbands and wives. Verses um, 1 through 6 in chapter 3. 
He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as heirs with you in the, of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers." Okay, I think it's really obvious that um, this is a fun week. To, we get to talk about slaves. We get to talk about women, right? Obey your husbands, call them Lord. Um, yeah, it is painful to read in 2019 a little bit at first glance, right? And so I think what we can take away is that the Bible is very oppressive towards women, and that's all there is to it. So moving on, um, no. This, this, these passages have been used for centuries to oppress and control people, right? And whether it is women who are told to just put your head down and obey and be quiet, or whether it is just, justifying the enslavement of people. The Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in the United States, was founded on the premise of making sure that verses like these could be used to propagate slavery in the United States, now, what we just walked through, I don't think we see Peter saying that everyone should try to own slaves, and that is a way that we will make slaves and humans better. Rather, he's saying, let's look at the standard of the world, let's redeem that standard with the gospel, and let's live in a way that people see Jesus. And if we look at what Peter is saying to women, if we want to understand it, we need to go back and we need to understand the culture that this was set in 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, women were, were seen as less than, right? It was, it was, here's the crazy situation of 2,000 years ago. It was okay to objectify women. It was okay to use them for their sexuality. It was okay to see them as, as weaker physically, and so men could regularly intimidate, violate, or control women. And for men who did that, there were little or no repercussions from a legal system because that's the way that it was. And so men who used their power in harmful ways against women really didn't have to answer for those actions. And by cultural standards, the only way that a woman could prove her worth or her true value was through her sex appeal and her physical appearance and whatever status symbol she could put outside of her body. Thank goodness we don't live in an awful world like that. Things haven't changed much. There, there are entire industries and marketplaces dedicated to telling women that your worth, your value, your beauty is found in how you appear. The greatest asset that you have to offer is your sexuality. The thing that we should look for most in a woman is how we can objectify and control her. Women still live in fear of what a man might do if caught alone in a parking lot at night. I have friends that, that walk with either mace or keys in between their fingers 
at night to their car alone. Because a stronger man might take an opportunity to do something that he wants, regardless of how it might affect her. Peter is saying, women, stop buying into the lie that your beauty is found externally. That is not where your beauty comes from. It comes from godliness. And and if we look at, if you were a Jewish person 2,000 years ago who was told that, that in being holy, in trying to emulate godliness, that you would be like Abraham's wife, that would be a really big deal, and it would not be a put down at all. He's saying, take the world standards that has prostitution regularly happening at the temples, the world that despises women. In fact, just real quick, there's a reason that Peter is saying to all of these wives who have unbelieving husbands, there was an abundance of Christian women because the world hated women, and when you had a girl baby, it was very acceptable to take her out to the trash heap outside of the city and leave her there to be dyed or to eaten by wild animals. And Christians decided that that wasn't okay. God loves little girls too. And so the Christians would nightly make rounds of the trash dumps and they would pick up little girls and they would bring them into their homes and they would raise them. And so these women grew up in Christian homes loving Jesus. And for the first three centuries of the Christian faith, the largest evangelist in the world, the greatest cause for the spread of Christianity was Christian wives and mothers who raised children and loved husbands in countercultural ways to show them Jesus. And so Peter's saying, live like Jesus. And so in your own marriage, don't do what the world says that, that you can manipulate or that you can try and gain power through, through sexual appeal and, and trying to make yourself look like they want you to on the outside. Rather, live in such a way that people see Jesus in how you live. Take the world standard, let's transform that with the gospel, and then let's live in a way that shows Jesus. And to husbands, he writes one verse as opposed to six to wives, right, which men love, except what he says in that one verse is, husbands, we know the world standard is that because you are stronger, because you have testosterone, and that can be handy for lots of things, the world says that because of your physical status, because of your social status, because you are a man and she is a woman, if you want something, you can get it. But actually, you should not see women in that way. Actually, you should respect them, and you should see them as co-heirs in Christ, right? Co-heirs, meaning they are entitled to every bit of the inheritance that you are. That is not something that a daughter got to have. Rather, Peter is saying, look at your wives in a different light than the world around you does. And instead of seeing them as someone that you can control or dominate, see them as an equal that you can bring and show respect to in a way that the world does not understand, because that looks like Jesus. In exile, our marriages should be unbelievable demonstrations to the world around us of what Jesus looks like. People who could use whatever gifts are available to them whatever means they have to control the other person. And rather, we look like Jesus who says every day, I want to serve those who follow me. I submit to the will of my father gladly because I love him and I know his heart. Peter is not saying that people should continue in abusive relationships, 
that there, there is no grounds for a relationship to ever have to take a different direction. He's not saying be a doormat. He's not saying put your head down and do what you're told. He's saying love each other in a way that the world might see Jesus in you. So, there's three examples. There are a whole bunch more. My question for you is what would Peter say to you? Right, after these three examples, he continues with verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Yes, in the way that you relate the government and authorities, be respectful. Yes, in the way that you relate to your bosses, to your coworkers, live like Jesus. Yes, in your marriages, be examples of how Jesus loves so that the world might see. But regardless, whether single, married, whether slave or free, whether influencer or on the margins, every one of our mandates is the same. Don't live like Babylon. Instead, let the gospel transform every part of your life so that the people around you might see Jesus and recognize him in you. Right? And so in Babylon, counter-kingdom counter values are all the rage. Right? In Babylon, some of the best things you can do is, is, is to be outraged, to be disrespectful, to have, to have hatefulness and arrogance at the front of your being. Right? You're going to fight fire with fire in Babylon. That's how we do it. We're not going to take anything on the chin in Babylon without swinging back. Except, that's not how Jesus did it. Actually, what we see in Jesus is that empires are overthrown with love, not with war. When Paul is speaking to slaves and how they're supposed to, to go through mistreatment, in their daily lives, back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus is the example for what life in exile looks like. Jesus came into exile so that he could act on our behalf. And the model that he gave us was one of the suffering servant who loved those around him, even those that would put him on a cross. The characteristics of followers of Jesus look very different than the characteristics of those familiar with Babylon. Right? Peter's words, be respectful, loving, compassionate, humble. That's like Jesus. And, and what you have to decide in Babylon is, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus really the answer? Because if I can find hope in anything besides Jesus, 
I should go with that. It is a lot easier to navigate Babylon when we play by their rules. But if Jesus is the only place I find hope, if Jesus is the only one who can actually address my sin issue, if Jesus is actually the one who offers the best life, then I have to go with Jesus. I have to live like Jesus. Right? Peter says that the, the blessing that you were called to so that you may inherit a blessing. Right? The blessing that we inherit, it is not a life with Jesus in which everything is Cracker Jacks and candy. Right? The blessing is getting to walk through life with Jesus who will never leave or forsake us, who will redeem us, who is the only name that saves. He is our rescuer. And life in him is the blessing. And so living like Jesus, living in a way that allows the world to see Jesus, allows us to live in blessing. And so if we think that Jesus is the answer, if we think Jesus is our hope, even if it's not the way the world around us does it, that's how we want to live. And so Peter gave three examples today. And again, I want to ask, what would he say to you? What's something right now that in your world you can identify, maybe, I need, maybe we need to recognize this is the standard of the world. What would it look like for that standard to be transformed by the gospel? And then what would it look like for me to live in a way that allowed others to see Jesus in my life? Right? What is it at home in the way that you relate to your spouse, in the way that you relate to your kids, in the way that you, you relate to your siblings, to your parents? What is it within your family that, that we need to recognize this is the standard of Babylon? This is what that standard might look like if it were transformed by the gospel. And then this is how I could live in a way that allowed people to see Jesus in me. What is it at work when, when it's with your awful boss or, or maybe it's the employees that you get to lead or it's your professor that you interact with daily that is awful or, or your, your coworkers? What is it that we need to say, this is the standard of the world, this is what it would look like for that to be transformed by the gospel, and this is what it would look like for us to live in ways that people would see Jesus? What is it in our words, in our conversations, in our, in our activity online, in our words on social media? What standards of the world, what would it look like for those to be transformed? And then how do we live in a way that allows the world to see Jesus? That's the question that exiles ask themselves daily. Right? That's, what, that's what this acts of love counter is all about. If you're new and you wonder what the heck is that giant heart and numbers up on the wall, um, or you're listening on the podcast and you're like, what on earth are they talking about? We have this number up here and it's at the, at the beginning of summer, we said for the rest of the year, we want to we do 5,000 tangible acts of love to our neighbors as a congregation that, that we do in the name of Jesus so that our neighbors might be loved the way that Jesus has told us to love people. And it's not to give ourselves a pat on the back. We don't have names attached to them. Anything. I get a report every week that, that shows the new ones. And, and it's just, we want to record them so that we can cheer each other on and say, no, this is, this is the idea. Live such good lives in Babylon, that even if people want to speak all sorts of things against you, they will recognize me by your lives. That's what that's about. That's what the vision statement on the wall is about. 
It's about people living lives that have been transformed by the gospel so that the world might be reached through us. Right? City Church exists not to get everybody in the doors, but rather to transform every part of our city through the people that are in these doors. How do we live out the gospel in exile in a way that is radically transformative? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And instead of just leaving it to be a nice little thought that you can walk out the door with and dismiss as soon as the menu comes to you in front of lunch, we're going to now try to really think it through. And so at the ends of your pews, there are post-it notes and pens. And we're going to worship together. We're going to sing two songs. And during that time, I want to invite you, this may feel totally weird to you. If you have not grown up doing anything like this in church, I promise it will be okay. But I want, I want you to write down what is a standard of the world that I maybe have bought into. Maybe it's just this idea that Jesus is the one who holds life, and I've never really gone in on that. What's a standard of the world that I bought into, and what might it look like for me to live in a way that allows people to see Jesus in me? So you're going to think through what standard of the world, what might it look like for the gospel to transform, and then you're going to write down, how can I live in a way that allows people to see Jesus in me? What is something I can do? And you don't have to make some grand gesture that will radically transform the world that everybody's gonna wanna make some documentary about on Netflix. Like, like just, what is something that you can do that allows the people around you to see Jesus in the way you live? And then over the course of the next two songs, I want to invite everybody to come stick that note up on the wall underneath the vision statement. And even you folks up in the balcony, we gave you time. I just wouldn't wait till the end of the second song. It doesn't have to be profound. You don't have to attach your name to it. But, but I think it will be helpful for us to see what does it look like for hundreds of families, hundreds of people to say, Let's let the world see Jesus in our lives. And so you can sit, you can stand, whatever posture you want to have, do the awkward shuffle around the people next to you. You'll figure it out, I promise. Jot something down, place it on the wall, and then I'll come back up and direct us from there. Let's worship together.